Hi, everyone. Just before we get going, I want to remind you that everything we talk about and discuss should not be considered as investment advice. The purpose of what we talk about on Catherine Murray Media and Markets on YouTube, as well as Catherine Murray in conversation with on my podcast, should be viewed as informational and entertainment purposes only. Please definitely do your own research, your own homework, and definitely consult an investment professional before making any investment decisions. And also to note, some of us might hold positions in some of the stocks uh, that we discuss. Eric, great to be able to get together with you and get your views on the energy sector. It has been on fire. I think there's so many people who, um, you know, who feel that they've missed the run-up. So we're going to address that today, but thanks so much for being with us. And for new viewers, um, this is Eric Nuttall. He is a partner and senior portfolio manager at Nine Point Partners and has been a uh, longtime bull on the energy sector. And wow, is it ever paying off. So welcome and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Um, and this format, it's, you know, top five at five. It's basically a, a shorter conversation, 20 minutes, um, and, and really getting thoughts on um, various sectors and, and ideas and, and themes within the investment arena right now. So, Eric, um, I know you just uh, had an article in Financial Post yesterday, I believe. Yeah, I think it was yesterday, which I read. Uh, and, it, and it really goes over the bullish case for energy, even though we've had this huge run up. So why don't you just kind of give us your thoughts these days? Yeah, sure. So I, I think we're in a multi-year bull market for oil. And that, that time frame is important because this isn't, in my mind, a one-month trade. It's not a one-quarter trade. It's something really just to park you know, money in and just let the call come to fruition because it centers around two main things. One is the demand for oil will continue to grow, I think, for the next 10 to 15 years. But importantly, the, the really bullish thesis is not on the demand side. It's really on supply. And there are, there are gating factors in terms of how quickly and how much production uh, U.S. shale can add onto the market, how much OPEC can add onto the market, how much the global super majors, for all the varying reasons, but it, it points to the same theme, and that is capital is constrained. We cannot add on enough volume over the next five, six years. That's the cycle time to bring on big projects. And the consequence of that is we have a very tight market today. You know, some say it's the tightest market they've seen in their careers. Inventories are now in a material deficit relative to average levels. Okay, why does that matter? The, the best uh, negative correlation to the oil price are inventories. As inventories fall, it propels the oil price up. And so as inventories have normalized and falling, that is the fundamental underpinning for why oil is going up, because it tells you how undersupplied the market is today. I don't see a scenario where inventory trajectory can, in, can incline. So I think there's growing pressures on the oil price. I do think, you know, we're in a ha very happy place now. Energy investors certainly don't need higher oil prices. I just think that's the consequence of energy ignorance, horrible government policy, the lack of uh, ability and willingness of companies to invest because they keep hearing about, you know, governments are going to want us all drive electric cars and, you know, the investors saying, well, geez, you know, we're not going to be using this stuff. So I'm not going to put value on barrels beyond the next couple of years. Like, so it, it's the culmination of a lot of different variables, but what it's effectively leading to is an oil supply crisis because demand will keep going up. You and I will be consuming oil for the rest of our lifetimes. Like that is very, very clear. We can touch on that if you want. Sure. Again, it's the supply side. Capital constrained, investors want returns, they want dividends, they want buybacks, they don't want the companies to grow. ESG pressures, 
the need to invest in solar and wind and de decarbonization, starving the upstream conventional, you know, dirty oil business, because, you know, it's, it's a sunset industry, of course, I say uh -huh. that pretty much tongue in cheek, and yeah. it's leading towards an oil supply crisis that I think ultimately will end in all-time high oil prices. We'll see 130, 140, 150. We'll see how high it goes. But energy stocks today are discounting an oil price of about 60 bucks. So, you know, you but mentioned- that's, that, Eric, that's Canadian energy companies, right? Or yes. is it- we traded a discount to U.S. peers. I think that's going to flip. By the end of this cycle, we'll trade at a premium. Because when you think about like, what do energy investors want and what are they not putting value on, the greatest opportunity today is in long-dated resource. And what do we mean by that? Energy ignorance, you know, I define as the lack of knowledge of most people in terms of how oil is used. And what is the likely timeline to displace oil with alternatives, whether it's hydrogen, you know, renewable jet fuel, uh, electric cars, et cetera, that's measured in decades. You know, it's going to take decades for all of those things to scale to displace oil. Yet people are ignorant, and that's the polite way of putting it. And so they think, you know, we're, I'm driving an electric car in four years because Trudeau tells me I'm going to be. So like, we don't need oil beyond four or five years time. And so the investment community is putting no value on long-dated reserves. The average company in Canada has 15 years of identified inventory that there is virtually no risk. Like it's, it's delineated, it's right there. So I use the analogy of, of a widget manufacturer just to make it very easy to understand. That is, you know, today widget manufacturers on average have 15 years of inventory sitting in a warehouse. But when you think about how profitable the widget business is these days, the average free cash flow so the amount of, you know, you've got to spend the excess cash that you get as a business. The average, average widget manufacturer could buy back all of their shares outstanding with four years of free cash flow at a widget price $8 lower than where widgets sell for today. So if you have 15 years in a warehouse and with four years of free cash, you can buy back all the shares outstanding, you're literally getting 11 years of widgets today for free. And so for oil, it's the exact same thing. The average, you look at the free cash field at $80 oil, the average company could privatize in just under four, point, uh, four years. And if you include debt, it's under five. So it's the value for nothing thing. It's getting identified hugely valuable inventory for free. And why is that? It's because the average person is ignorant. The financial market is ignorant and they don't understand the value of long-dated resource, which brings me to Canada, because we're blessed with an abundance of long-life resource, predominantly in the oil sense. And so our companies have very little leverage. On average, it would take three quarters now of free cash flow for the average company to pay off all of their debt. So balance sheets are awesome. Yeah. Decline, decline rates due to the nature of our geology is very low. What does that mean? A company doesn't have to spend as much to keep their production up, so they generate more free cash, meaning they can pay more dividends, they can do more buybacks. And we trade at about the same valuation level as Russian EMP stocks. And you know, we could say you know, our federal government may not be the biggest champion of the sector, but we don't have tanks lined up along the Ukrainian border right now. And so is that political risk discount being placed on our stocks warranted or not? I would suggest not. And so now, my fund can invest anywhere in the world. We've got uh, one U.S. company now, 13-ish Canadian ones. And so that's where we're finding the very best opportunity today. I just want to segue for one second and pick up um, on the geopolitical tensions. 
um, and how that might or is impacting the energy sector. Uh, I, I haven't looked at Russian energy companies for a number of years, um, but um, you know that, that's interesting. What, what are they looking like in terms of the discount because of the tensions? And they'd be trading at three to three to three and a half, four times um, EV to cash flow. And it, it's difficult. Like, you know, I, I was talking with my team uh, this morning and a couple of people, and it's, it's tough to know how to navigate the short term. And I've made the decision just to, I've adopted the mentality that we're going to see $100 oil by the end of this year. It's a massive opportunity. And you can trip over pennies on your way to dollars by trying to time the short termism because really, Okay, let's. So I had a Goldman report out last night saying OPEC may accelerate barrels onto the market. I've got energy aspects saying no, they won't. Let's assume they do. Is that bullish or bearish? Because it's accelerating the timeline to OPEC exhausting all of their spare capacity, which I think will happen by the fall time. That's going to be one of the biggest bullish catalysts in the energy sector in modern history. So will the market interpret that positively or negatively? Geopolitical risk premium, the oil price because of Russia, Ukraine right now. Like, you know, will Biden sanction energy? Will he not? You know, inflation is a massive problem for him. You got midterm. So there's a lot of short-term elements. You take a step back. We're in a multi-year bull market. We're going to see $100 or higher. Stocks are discounting 60. Companies are returning gobs of free cash flow back to investors. Uh, the energy sector is massively outperforming. It's dragging people back into the trade. And stocks and stocks still remain under owned. And so that's 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 my what I'm yeah. to focus on. It the other stuff is just kind of short-term noise. So a couple things there as well. Um, it is interesting to see investors being dragged back into the sector because they had been so resistant for so many years because you know of, of you know the perception of of bad dirty oil, right? If you were a general um, portfolio manager and the energy sector, and this is for our viewers to understand, the energy sector as a whole represented much less of the index. They wouldn't get penalized or punished from a performance perspective if they didn't own energy. Now, um, I'm not sure what the percentage on the S&P 500 as an example index is. You, you would know where the TSX. It's about three, three and a quarter percent. So it's still low in the U.S. because oh. it got, it got decimated and it, but it was never as critical to the u.s markets or it hasn't been in, in a long time canada i think we're about 17 to 18 percent so that that matters so if you're a canadian fund manager and our you know our, our mortal weakness is my client can fire me by the click of a mouse button in like three nanoseconds and what keeps them from doing that is performance you know we're paid to perform so yeah. if I'm a generalist fund manager and I'm hearing, you know, I've, I've read an article this morning, Financial Post, some, some nut jobs talking about, you know, $100 oil and stocks are working. I'm seeing dividend increases all the time. My clients are starting to ask, oh, do you have energy? My performance, you know, is, is dragging from not having it. You can't justify that anymore. And so the right. pressure builds and builds and it's FOMO, that fear of missing out builds and builds and builds until you just, you can't take it anymore. And so what do you do? You go by CNQ. Well, CNQ happens to be the top performing energy stock of the big, the big guys. So then it's, it becomes fairly valued. So you start going down the market cap spectrum and you come to what I own because that's where the biggest mis, uh, mispricings are. Like you have, you have Rafi on, on your program. He and I, in my opinion, are the, kind of the last people standing in this sector in terms of true active you know, energy, energy funds. And so that's yeah. two of us in a, what used to be a big component of the index. So what that means is there's very few people doing the work, very few people 
saying, you know, you've got quality trading like junk and junk trading the same as quality. There's an opportunity there. I can own quality and allow, you know, certain uh, catalysts or milestones to, to allow them to get re-rated. So it's, it's a very inefficient market, which for an active stock picker is, is great. Because I, I look at my model still to this day. You know, we, we had an okay year last year. We were up 186%. And wow. even still, stocks remain really cheap. And I, even still, like I look at my models, I'm like, how do other people not see what I'm seeing? It's just, it's arithmetic. And so it's like an $80 oil. You know, the average company in Canada can pay a 27% dividend. And what are we seeing? They, they will have achieved their deleveraging goals in the next couple of months if they haven't already. And so you're going to see buybacks. You're going to see dividends. And you know, I've used this, this uh, analogy of the generalist investors stuck in this apathetic coma, you know, a coma of apathy. They just, they just, they don't care. What awakes them to the opportunity is that meaningful action on the part of the companies through buybacks and dividends. And finally, we're starting to see, like last year, the theme was return of, you know, capital to the debt guy, you know, pay down debt, get the banks up, they were bad actors. This year, it's return to you know, the equity guy in the form of buybacks and dividends. So that's a lot more exciting for the sector. And it's, it's another reason why I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about return potential this year. And I just want to pick up as well on um, the supply side, because I mean, and we should talk a little bit even more about the demand side, because people really did push that aside, um, yeah. you know, really thinking that, you know, it was all going to be about um, green energy and we aren't there. Well, why don't we just talk about this right now in terms of all the uses, I mean, every chemical, every, you know, you, paper gets made, I mean, really. energy everywhere, right? Yeah. But why don't you just talk about that because you did say that there's a lot of ignorance surrounding, surrounding the demand side of the equation. Yeah, so we demand is back to pre-COVID levels, even though jet fuel demand remains weak because leisure travel is a pain in the, you know what, with, you know, quarantines and all, all the rules and such. But we're back to about 101 million barrels per day. So how is that used on a daily basis? 60% is transportation, 40% is not. And for that part of transportation, it's about half roughly are cars, you know, 27% of total demand are cars. So you're like, okay, well, I hear electric cars, you know, some exciting models like your Tesla, you know, there was a recall this morning and such. Well, how many years will it take sales to replace the install base? So let's do the math. There are 1.3 billion internal combustion engines to replace. So that's the goal. You got to get rid of them, right? EV sales last year globally were 5 million. So 5 million is going to grow. It's going to grow quickly. But how quick, how many years or decades does it take for 5 million to scale to replace 1.3 billion? And it's not really 1.3 billion because every year EV sales are growing. So are the install base of electric cars. So my math says we're into like late 2030s, early 2040s. Well, that's only one use. Heavy hauling trucks, it's 17%. Uh, that's hydrogen, you know, hydrogen. Low barrier to entry, massively expensive, no competitive edge, commoditized business. It's going to be a low margin, just like wind is now, where it's a 2% margins to make wind, wind turbines, like awesome business. Well, how many years will it take to scale hydrogen to replace diesel demand globally? Again, you're into the 2040s. Jet fuel, you know, we're, now we're talking about using car, car, cow carcasses and algae to produce enough you know, uh, jet fuel, which is an 8 million barrels per day that's consumed for by Amazon and the military and business travel and leisure travel. And so that may sound like a big challenge. That's the low-hanging fruit. And that is that ignores things like, okay, for every American to drive an electric car, 
you've got to double the power generation capabilities in the United States. That seems like a bit of, of a mission. But at the same time, they want to completely decarbonize the power gen. So you got to scrap everything you have and do it. It's just, so I said that there's this chasm between well-intentioned government policy. Politicians truly, I think most of them have good intentions, but they're ignorant. There's this energy reality over here and it's, it's like the Grand Canyon now. Eventually those have to converge. Copper deficits, we're running, we don't have enough copper to do it. Like it's just, but that's the, that's the easy stuff. I haven't talked about the other 40% that you referenced that is petrochemicals, lubricants, plastics, cement, agriculture, all of those things that grow as the global population grows and as living standards rise, which they're doing. You know, you and I consume about 20 barrels of oil a year. The average globally is five. And so the higher your living standards, the more oil intensive it is. And so the global population is going to grow by 32% between now and 2050 when we have to reach net zero. And the living standard where that population growth is occurring is increasing at the same time. And so how do you tell those people, you consume five, you consume 20, you need to consume less. You can't. And so when you take a step back, and you, you, you tune out the noise of the ignorant and you look at this is our energy reality. Nobody can look at that and tell me the demand is not going to grow for the foreseeable future. I'm glad we went through those details because, you know, people don't um, don't know um, where the demand is coming from and the growth uh, of the population um, as well. You know, just uh, it's so key and critical to to the conversation. The other side, of course, is the supply side. And this is where like I'm, I'm full on board with the demand side, full on board. And the time it's going to take to become green. I'm, I'm wearing green today, interestingly. So I don't have that was not planned. Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, but the supply side. You know, when we really think back, you know, when I, when I, I worked on Wall Street when, when the shale players were just coming onto the market and they were so powerful in terms of increasing the supply. And I've had so many conversations about this, that they're just not in the same position that they were once in. But can you just describe that? Because I think it's still really important to know. Shale is a massively important concept to understand because were it not for U.S. shale growth, non-OPEC production would have been flat over the past decade, while demand had grown by about 10 million barrels per day. So it's, it was all about shale. And so did shale growth occur because of awesome geology and technology, multi-stage fracking? It really was for another reason, and that was the financial markets were wide open. And companies raised, I believe it was almost a trillion dollars of shareholder equity that they plowed into the ground and basically artificially suppress the oil price for a period of time because they didn't generate like returns from that. They were being incentivized. The stock price, stock price of the shale codes went up for a time. CEOs made money for a time because they were motivated to do it because that's how they earned their bonuses. Fast forward today after investors, energy investors got massively burned. Like, and that's being kind. The shareholder base is new, they're value guys, guys like me. And they say, look at why would you grow? What we want is at $80 oil, the average one of you can pay me a 10% dividend per year, or you can buy back 10% of your stock, do that. And so moderate your growth to maybe a couple percent a year, maximize free cash flow, and pay me in the form of a variable quarterly dividend. And so they've done that, it's codified. And so energy investors are getting that. So the only way for Shale Co. to repeat the past, that assumes they could because they've depleted a lot of their good inventory, that's a whole other conversation. 
But that's really important as well. They've depleted a lot of their inventory. Absolutely. Of, of, okay. good, of good inventory. Because Mother Nature, it's very heterogeneous. You know, not all shale is good. A lot of it is absolute garbage. But in critically, it's like, why can companies not spend as much as they did in the past? It's, they'd have to go back. They'd have to come to guys like me and say, I know you're liking that really juicy quarterly income, 10%, 12%, but we want that money back. And we want it because we want to go drill and grow production because we know how wonderful that turned out the last time around that we did. Investors would say, you're fired and your board we're going to toss because I need 5% of a company to do that. Like it doesn't take much. So, and by the way, this, the, the um, bonus schemes of the CEOs have changed. They're not even motivated to grow. And, and frankly, growth is hard. You deplete your inventory, you, you raise your corporate decline rate, meaning how much volume you lose every year, meaning less free cash flow, meaning it's just that worse of a business to, uh, to run. That's the harder path. It's easier for CEO, make your 15 million bucks a year, keep your investors happy, pay them a dividend, nobody complains, everyone's happy. So it's, it's a structural shift that I don't see changing. And that's, okay. that's it's critically important because without that, without that 10 year failed experiment of shale growth, we already would have been in the oil supply crisis that I see coming in the next year, two, three years. Like it was already inevitable. Now yeah. it's, it's that much clearer. And so when you think about investing then right now from a geographic perspective, is it mostly, sounds like it's mostly Canadian based for you, correct? Yeah, and it's not just because I'm, you know, I'm in Toronto now. I can travel to Calgary. this pre-COVID a lot, and the management teams coming through. It's where when you look at, okay, what do energy investors globally want? It's the same thing. They want returns. They want dividends. They want buybacks because if you know stocks now, we think they're you know they've done well, but they're still trading near their lowest valuations in history. So there's a disconnect that needs to be fixed, and they do that by increasing dividends, doing specials, doing buybacks. That's my preferred mechanism. So you think about, okay, what are the attributes of a company that allows maximum returns? It's low financial leverage, it's low decline rate, and it's long life reserves. Check, check, check for Canada. Plus our valuations are distressed, so are depressed. So I look at like the average Canadian large cap, we're trading at a one and a half time discount to the US peers. Well, why? Like we have better attributes. So that's an opportunity just to catch up, let alone value being placed on those long dated barrels, you know, barrels being produced five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, where today there is zero value. You literally, if you buy an energy stock on average, again, you know, at, at, at 80, let's talk 100, let's take a dream for a minute. The average company can privatize with 2.6 years of free cash flow. So you're getting 13 years of reserves for free. I don't know a price, which, you know, I think we could see by the end of this year. So that's, that's my, my frame of reference for where the best opportunities. And then within Canada, it's all about small mid caps, small mid caps where, you know, I manage about 1.3 billion right now. So I, I can't, you know, be buying, you know, a 5 million market cap. I'd have to own 20, 20 of them right. to, to be material, but you can invest in a billion, $2 billion, $3 billion company where I still see on average, the average upside I see of a Canadian energy stock is 123% right now on average. And I always try to do better than average. And you do that by, you know, uh, really focusing in on the companies that offer you outsized upside relative to the risk you're taking on. And in my mind, that's Canadian mid-cap oil companies that, that are returning capital. Got it. And um, just, just to pick up on one point in terms of the price of oil moving higher, they always say the cure for higher, higher oil prices or higher oil prices. So is that a risk at all? 
Demand destruction will occur when the burden on the global economy is about five to six percent. Okay, that sounds academic. That means until we get to 130 to 140 dollars per barrel, it's not costly enough to change our behavior. And you know, when we go back to the supply, shale companies, we could be at 130 bucks. I'm going to be happy because I'm going to be getting an even bigger dividend. Great. It's not going to lead to meaningful growth. Like they're still going to grow. I think shale growth will be seven, eight hundred thousand barrels per day this year. That's a fraction of prior years, and it's less than global demand. And that's part of that is privates. They're out of inventory like in a year. OPEC, they're out of spare capacity by the fall time of this year. And so they, they need to bring on new projects. Well, it takes five to six years to deliver a offshore oil project. So great, spend money today, sanction it today, see in five to six years. But that's why the, you know, my, the, the theme kind of got perverted a little by the financial post. Like it wasn't, it's five to six years or more in terms of how long I see uh-huh. this bull market, because that's, yeah. that's long cycle time. That's how long it takes to deliver um, a project. And then the global super majors, you know, they're 40% of global oil supply. Um, they're, they've, they've used all of the major projects sanctioned back in the era of hundred bucks. It was 2010, 2014. And now you've got investors saying you've got to decarbonize, you've got to invest in solar, wind, dividends, deleveraging, no one's saying growth. So why would you sanction a project today where it takes you four to six years to bring it online, another four years to reach project payout, that's 10 years, when people are saying, oh, geez, you know, demand's going to be peaking. So it's the, the line that I've said is the fear of peak demand is leading to the reality of peak supply. That's what I mean, that the ignorance around how long, and frankly, I think oil price keeps going up once we reach peak demand, but that's probably another conversation which we may not have time for, but no one's investing today. No one's been investing meaningfully since 2014. And so there's that inventory projects, they're on. And now there's an offshore decline rate of about 10% that we're not, we don't have enough projects to offset plus demand growth. Got it. Um, and, and just for our viewers to be clear, you know, um, I, like you, we, you know, we, we want, you know, to have less carbon in the world, but I think we understand the energy reality. Um, so it's not that I'm not green. <laughs> it's just, we, we've got, we've got a long, I think we've got a long way to go. And it also takes a lot of energy to create the, the green energy. Nice. That's the other aspect that we didn't even talk about, which we won't talk about today. But I do, you know, I want to keep us to, to the 20 minutes for a little bit over. Um, but, you know, Eric, people always want to know your stock picks. Um, but as a PM managing $1.3 billion, um, there's a compliance aspect. So why don't you just talk a little bit about that and, and where people can really kind of look to see what you own? Yeah, well, the easiest way is to go to our website. If you truly want to look at individual names, we I manage a fund, obviously, it was the top performing energy fund in the world last year, according to Morningstar. You can buy it on, on the um, through an ETF and NRG, so it's an easy way. But if that's not good enough and you want to try to pick stocks, we list our top 10 on our website. You can take on single issue or risk, et cetera, and not get the benefit of active management. People don't know, like, you know, this, our, our industry is very tightly regulated and my compliance department is the best of anybody. So if I, if I mention a name, I can't buy or sell it, you know, for, uh, for three days. So we were going to talk about five names. Well, that'd be like 60% of my funds. So it, it, there's, there's problems with, with that. So, you know, at first pers- I'm biased, clearly. I think there's a strong benefit of hiring an active manager who's proven the ability to, you know, on an after fee basis, generate a ton of value. But if that's not good enough, then, uh, you know, people that follow me, some people follow me on Twitter. I tend to put up a lot of graphs there, or you can go to the 
ninepoint.com website and we, we list our top 10. Okay, uh, Eric, uh, we will leave it on that note. Thank you so much for um, the in-depth conversation. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks very much.